So welcome to Public Health Out Loud, Public Health for the Public. So today's episode is COVID Explained. I'm Dr. Jim McDonald, Medical Director of the Rhode Island Department of Health. How are you doing, Dr. Phil Chan? I'm doing well. Good uh, day, everyone. And it's great to have Emily Oster with us. So Emily Oster, how are you today? I am good. I'm excited to be here with you guys. Yeah, so we're going to do an episode today, COVID Explained. And I'm excited about this episode because I love to have complicated things explained simply. Um, it's something that I just think is very important for everyone. But before we get started in this, can you just tell us a little bit about who you are and, and what you do? Yeah, so um, my name is Emily Oster. I'm a professor of economics at Brown University. Um, I am also a writer, so I write books about pregnancy and, and parenting. Um, using tools from economics and, and data analysis. Uh, and during the COVID pandemic, I've been doing a lot of work uh, on COVID, um, a lot of it surrounding kids and families and pregnancy and so on. And, and then some of it a little bit further further afield. So um, so that's kind of my, I think that's why, why you have me on here. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Dr. Oster, for joining us. Uh, I followed you a little bit. Uh, I really am impressed by your your writing skills, especially, I think one of my goals in life at some point is to is to write a book. Um, I've written a bunch of scientific papers, but there's a certain art to writing a book that uh, I really admire in people that can do it. So I just wanted to point that out and, and thank you again for joining us. Yeah, it's exciting to be here. So tell us exactly what COVID Explained is and uh, and maybe some details of what you've been doing during the pandemic and, and ways that you've tried to disseminate some of the knowledge um, about the pandemic and how to best address it. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that when the pandemic started, there was a question of, you know, how, how can I contribute and, you know, are there, are there skills that I can bring to the, to the table that would, uh, that would help people. And I think, you know, for me, the place that I, I think I had the most to contribute was really in this kind of ex explaining to people concepts from, from science um, or from data. And, and I, particularly early on, there was so much information coming in all the time. And I was doing a lot of writing for parents and for, and for pregnant women and sort of every day was like a new study and people were just panicking. And there seemed to be very limited understanding of even basic questions about how the virus worked. So I think we know much more now, but if you kind of cast your mind back to like how things felt in, in May, you know, there, there were of course some people who were like, oh, the whole thing is a hoax. But then there was also this feeling of like, well, you know, what is the big, like, why would it matter if I wash my hands? You know, if I go to the grocery store and someone has touched a salad box and then I touch the salad box a half an hour later, like, do I immediately get COVID with hundred percent probability? Like, what's the point of washing my hands if that's true? And so I think we I kind of recognize, look, there's a need for people to understand even some very basic stuff about like, how does the virus work? How does it get into your nose? What happens if it gets in? What are the defenses that your body has? Um, and then to answer some, some underlying questions that, that kind of relate to that, which is like, do I have to wash my groceries? You know, is it okay to touch my neighbor's pets? Like the kinds of questions that I think we never thought that we would have. And yeah, we found ourselves, uh, found ourselves asking. So, um, so COVID explained is a, is a website it's covidexplained.org, um, in which we have a, uh, you know, I worked, um, with a bunch of doctors, scientists, you know, people who really get into this stuff to try to help people understand the answers to some of these questions by kind of explaining the science in a way that is more, um, you know, potentially more digestible, but also, you know, really takes the science seriously. So it isn't just like a list of rules It actually, we're actually trying to help people understand how does the virus work? 
why would it matter to wash your hands? Why would it matter to wear a mask? What are, what are some of these new facts that are coming out and how can we, how can we really understand how to parse? Them? So that's, that's really the goal of, of the COVID Explained project. Dr. Oster, I was looking at explainedcovid.org, and it is interesting when you go through Google, Google, COVID explained works as well. But it, it just makes me curious, like, what, what have you really learned uh, since you started contributing to this project? Like, I just, I, I'm, I'm a bit of a student of humans. I find humans really fun to be around, and I, I'm fascinated. But I just, I imagine there's a lot you've learned as you've walked down this road. Yeah, I think one of the big lessons for me is that people crave certainty. People really, really want answers that are just like, yes, no. Like, is it like, do I have to, you know, is it okay to go to a playground? This is like a big question for a lot of parents. Is it okay to go to a playground? And they just kind of want to know, like, yes. I mean, they want to know yes, but like they, they just want, people just want an answer. And so I think a big lift has been trying to, to explain to people that there is uncertainty in the answers to these questions. And that particularly because the information is new and because the disease is new, that we are going to have to live with that some of that uncertainty, and we're going to have to make decisions even in the face of, of that uncertainty. And and I understood in some ways that people would feel like that, but it has been um, I think it has been way beyond what what we the kinds of uncertainty that we normally deal with in our in our lives. And just helping people grapple with that has been a has been a big piece of this explaining really. Yeah, it, it's so interesting. You talk about people crave certainty. And, and that really resonates with me. I think that when you think about just times of crisis and times of just, you know, quite frankly, global uncertainty, I think there's just a natural tendency just for us to really crave certainty. It really, that concept resonates with me, but it's interesting, like so much, like I'm a pediatrician when I'm not doing public health. And I think so often parents want certainty too. And it's, it's one thing I talk to younger doctors about is I think, you know, parents want to hear my diagnosis. They don't want to hear my dilemma. So I don't want to hear the hundred things I had to think through in my mind to get to what is wrong with the little guy today. What they want to know is what do I really think is going on? So it's interesting, but I think you're right. People do need to live with a certain amount of uncertainty during the pandemic because it's a new disease. Yeah. And I think that there is a part of adapting yourself to the fact that you are going to have to make a choice without knowing for sure. So, you know, early on, I was writing a lot about, about daycare and, you know, should you send your kid back to, to daycare? And, you know, what do we know about that? And, and sort of, I think people needed to recognize, like, look, you're going to have to make a choice to do this or not. And there isn't going to be a guarantee of perfect safety in either direction. There isn't going to be like a perfect answer. You're going to need to move forward, recognizing both that there is some uncertainty and that neither choice that you're faced with is really great because the bottom line is that there's a global viral pandemic. And so all of our choices are less good than they would be in the absence of, of COVID. And I think, I guess that's the other piece that there's the kind of uncertainty. And then also the just all, most of the time, we're not really in a position to have a choice that we're really happy with because there's this overlay of, of the pandemic that makes everything you know much, much more difficult. And I think that's another thing that's been really hard for people. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Oster. I think we've all grappled with that to some extent, uh, personally for me, for sure. I think building off that a little bit, I'd be curious about one or two things that's really surprised you um, about the pandemic in general and specifically about the science. I think uh, for someone that's followed it, uh, including myself, you know, one thing I was uh, pondering the other day was about this whole concept of, of, of droplet transmission versus airborne, concept of masks and how some of really our paradigms of how we think about respiratory viruses and transmission is gonna be forever altered uh, by this pandemic in a good way in terms of more understanding. 
just curious if there's a, you know, if, if in your own thinking, if anything has shifted uh, from the, since the start of the pandemic and, and what surprised you about some of the scientific developments uh, as we moved along here? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think unlike you, like I am not a doctor of medicine. And so, you know, I think that I had probably fewer, um, like a, in some sense, a less good understanding of, of respiratory viruses coming into this. And so there was less for me to be surprised about because my priors were more, uh, were more diffuse, uh, diffuse, as they say. You know, I think that uh, one of the things that that has been very surprising to me is just the huge range of, uh, of how serious this is, even within individual people. So, you know, on the one hand, you kind of have, um, there's some general sense that like people who are older, people who have more pre-existing conditions, have more serious illness. That's something that we, that we know, but it is also the case that, you know, you'll have nursing homes where many, many people have, have died and then others have been sort of totally asymptomatic. So it seemed to me like that was perhaps somewhat different than something like the flu where most people who get the flu get at least somewhat sick. And this sort of range of things seemed, um, at least I found, I found surprising. But I think that uh, things like droplets, I have found this stuff really interesting, but I, I didn't really know what to expect. And so I guess in that sense, anything would have surprised me. Um, and yet nothing surprised me any more than anything else. Yeah, it, you know, it's so interesting. I love the word surprise because, you know, one of the things I think about with this, it's a relatively new disease, right? The disease has still been on the planet just a little over a year. And I, and I think that's just a concept that I'm still getting my arms around. Like, and I've been a physician for over 30 years, and there just haven't been that many new diseases during my over 30-year career. HIV was just coming into fruition uh, when I was in medical school, and that was the other big new disease I remember learning about. Uh, but I, I just think there's a lot of just interesting things to learn about this. And I, I think that's why... It's funny, like when I think of the word surprise as a physician and as a person with a background of science, I think of that being exciting and fun and I'm learning new things. You know, to the general public though, I think the surprise comes across as uncertainty and then there's lack of confidence. And, and it, it just makes people a little bit like, oh, is this supposed to be happening? And I, and I think that's one of the things I've just noticed. And I guess I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Like, to me, I think in the scientific community, there's a great deal of comfort for, well, we're learning new things, we get new information, we make new recommendations, where I think for the public, it's like, hmm, are they sure they know what they're talking about? I mean, have you noticed any of that? Yeah, I think that's a huge, it is a huge thing, which is basically for, for people who are in the space of doing science, you kind of understand, okay, like, we're going to, you know, we're going to, there's going to be some things that we thought before and we didn't think now masks are the obvious example like there was a period in which people thought you know well this isn't well actually masks even like like well-educated people who know a lot thought well masking isn't really going to matter that much it turns out that it, it it does matter a lot um and you know for for people who do, do more science there was an understanding of right all right we thought something based on you know earlier diseases or based on other paradigms and then we learned something more and now you know now we know now we know better but i think that can come across like are you just making stuff up? Like you're just, you don't, what do you know? You're just like, you're just, you said that yesterday, you say this today, like what, like what, what is it that you, that you learn? And I think that this comes up, um, this is something I found very familiar from a lot of my experiences with like pregnancy and, and parenting stuff. So um, in like an obvious related example, not related, but an obvious example where this happens is in um, allergens. So for a long time, people were told like, don't give your kids peanuts. Uh, because they might, that'll make them more likely to develop an allergy if you give them peanuts when they're very little. And then we got some new data, which suggested actually that was just literally exactly the opposite of, 
the right thing. So in fact, you should give your kids peanuts. You should give them peanuts like very early on in life. And that prevents allergy. I mean, you know this, Jim, but I think that there was this, this moment where parents were like, but you told me, like with my first kid, you told me not to do that. And now you're telling me to do it. Like, are you just like making things up? Like what made you change your mind? And I think yeah, that's, that's happening that's so a great much example. faster here, right? I think so too, but I, the peanut thing is so funny because it's so funny you say that as a pediatrician, that was something we said for so many decades. Um, but I, I think there was other things we, you know, it, but it's funny, like now as a pediatrician, when I'm talking to moms of little babies after six months and I talk about introducing solid food, I hit the peanut concept early and explain the difference. But it reminds me, there's are things that have changed throughout medicine. You know, I, I've been a doctor so long. I remember when we told people, you need to put your baby to sleep on their belly because that's the safest place for a baby to sleep. And then, you know, over a decade ago, we moved to sleep on your back only, you gotta move back to sleep. And I just feel like this is one of the things that I think the public handles, handles better when it comes from their doctor telling their child and them themselves. And I think that's where the individual ground game um, is more successful than having it broadcast. You need that broadcast message, but it really gets that individual one-on-one -on -one relationship. Yeah, you need people to try. I mean, really, like you need you need the trust, and you need people to say, okay, you need and you need the time. It's it's a trust, it's the relationship, but it's also the time to kind of explain things. And I think everything here has happened so so fast that we haven't had that kind of time. Even if you have a sort of trusted person, let alone you know the fact that like people aren't seeing each other as much. So I, I think it's just been really hard to to kind of move past some of those, uh, even some of those sort of familiar. Uh, familiar issues with behavior change. Yeah, it's a great point here that we're talking about in terms of uh, all these changes. And, and I think one thing we've really tried, at least from the public health department perspective, one thing that we've really tried to emphasize is that everything is so rapidly evolving um, and then we need you know people to be flexible and patient as we learn more. Uh, it's one of those messaging points we've really tried to push out. And I think in general, people have been very receptive uh, but I think to your points too, you know, we need to be careful uh, about doubling down on certain facts and 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 saying things as facts when they may change, especially in the near future. I mean, to me, the pace of this pandemic has really been unlike anything I've ever experienced before. Both the pace in terms of um, you know things being updated, the pace of science. It's been really fascinating to watch the entire science, really the worldwide scientific community all coming together across different disciplines to try to solve this crisis that we're having and all these innovative approaches, whether it be testing or, you know, personal protective equipment or, you know, mitigation, et cetera. It's really been fascinating to watch. Um, I did want to ask you about one thing uh, related to uh, children specifically uh, and the K through 12 school setting. I think um, given that you've done some work in this uh, in this area, just curious about your take on what's happened. I mean, we're, we're essentially one full semester uh, past um, uh, the K through 12 setting. I think that I feel like we've done okay, uh, but I'm curious about your take and, and how you think uh, we've done uh, both in terms of COVID-19 in K through 12 and, and also moving forward, what should we look to do uh, certainly as, this, as the second semester starts uh, for K through 12? Yeah, so I mean, I think one thing is it's sort of worth stepping back to say, why has this been such a, like it, it, part of what people really struggle with with the, with the kids stuff is that that if you, you asked earlier what was surprising about the virus, I guess one thing, this is the piece that was surprising in the sense that kids do not seem to be uh, heavily affected. They tend to have like mild disease. They probably are less likely to be infected uh, than, than adults. That's really different than something like the flu. And so I think it's been very part of the, 
challenge with K through 12 has been moving past these sort of pretty strong preconceptions that people have about respiratory viruses and um, and and kids. Um, you know, how has K 12 been going? I mean, I you know I've been collecting a lot of data on this um, from various places, and you know my sense is that um, that people have gotten you know there is some COVID at schools, but it it they this, these are not really high risk environments. Most of the cases seem to come from elsewhere, seem to come from outside. Um, there doesn't seem to be a lot of transmission in school, particularly for um, for for younger kids. Uh, at the same time, you know, a lot of places kids have been out of school, perhaps for this entire, uh, you know, for the entire semester. Um, I think that's that's not been going well. Remote learning has not proved to be a great uh, a great option, um, and we are seeing a lot of learning losses, you know, particularly for more disadvantaged kids. Um, it's probably not a surprise if you read the other stuff that that I write that you know I think um, that Rhode Island has done a really good job in trying to keep schools open as much as possible and um, and supporting them. You know I think that the I'm very pleased to see that the Biden administration seems like they would like to uh, get more schools uh, open and and keep schools open. I think I am aligned with the people who think that testing is kind of a key to doing that. So. You know the vaccines are are great and they're coming and we're going to have them, but it's going to be a while for for kids. Um, and I think we need to be doing um, we need to be doing testing in schools. We need to be doing surveillance testing. Um, you know, I'd like to see the Venex uh, as this like people doing rapid tests um, pretty frequently in schools because I think that if we can do that, then we can buffer a little bit the possibility. You know, vaccine rollouts are slower with um, with kids. And we can really increase the the trust and the uh, comfort, with, you know, of educators, right? So as as this conversation has has evolved, I think we've realized that kids themselves are probably not at high risk, but the people who are the adults who are in the building with them, you know, are at least a higher risk group. Whether they're at risk from school or not is less obvious. Uh, but I, I think that anything we can do to increase the confidence there, and I think testing is going to be a big piece of that. Um, I would like to. I would like to see more of that. Yeah, Dr. Oster, that's great. And I think, you know, one of the things I was just thinking about is colleges and universities are, are different than K through 12. And, you know, last week our episode was entitled Pandemic University. And we had a college student on talking about their first semester of college. And it was great. Lewis, uh, Lewis was a great guest. But it makes me curious, what are your thoughts about colleges and universities? And, and you know, we can take that in multiple directions like how do you think things have gone? I mean, one of the things I've just been thinking about is like, I, I've seen a lot of the kids, the younger kids who aren't going to school and it's been harder uh, than I, I can possibly imagine. The kids who aren't going to school, rarely am I hearing parents saying, boy, this is great. Usually what I'm hearing parents say is, I'm not a teacher. This is really a problem. It's just not going well. And the parents are telling me it's like a lost year. And with college students though, it's a bit different. I see a lot of kids are going to school Yet some colleges are online completely. Um, it's different with college students. What is your experience and, and thoughts about the whole college experience? Yeah, so I mean, I so I was I I played a role in kind of organizing how we we're doing this at Brown. Um, we brought back a bunch of kids in the fall. We'll bring back more in the um, in the spring. Um, I I you know again I think the sort of key to keeping things basically running um, was you know having this surveillance testing. And I think a lot of the places that have had um, you know, that have had relatively successful uh, experiences were doing a lot of, um, you know, we're doing a lot of testing. So we tested everybody twice a week, um, faculty, staff, students who are on campus and off campus. 
Um, so it was a pretty elaborate, um, pretty elaborate testing testing regime, and I think it was you know largely pretty um, pretty successful. You know, I think frankly it has been hard for the students. You know, there isn't a lot of um, there isn't a lot of in-person classes, and so they're doing a lot of learning online. And so yes, it's nice to be back and be around your friends, but I think that it has been still a little bit isolating. And there are definitely um, you know I definitely have been worried about the mental health of our um, you know, of our, of our students, I, I have a small, I you know, do have some thesis students who I meet, uh, who I was, you know, once we were allowed to, I met them, I met them in person and the sort of like level of gratefulness that they had for the possibility of just like sitting outside a picnic table and having a class for, you know, for an hour, uh, was, um, made me think, boy, we, we got to make sure that we're, we're paying attention to these kids. So, you know, I think just like with K-12, there really is this, um, you know there are there are really big losses uh, to to all of the different choices that we make. So you know there's the COVID risk, but then there's these other risks. And I think it's a it's a mistake even with college students to assume that somehow you know those things are not are not real risks as well. You know it's interesting. One of the things you remind me about is when I was in college. Like it's funny. There's moments in college which I remember extremely well. But one of the moments I remember that was just a defining moment, and, and it's interesting, I think I'm one of the rare people who can point to a defining moment when my success was totally geared on this one 90 second conversation. So I remember one night I was at school doing some organic chemistry homework, getting ready for a quiz the next day, and Eve Rozier, one of my college student friends, came over to ask me a question in my first semester on organic chemistry about a reaction. And you know, I had always learned that organic chemistry was everybody said memorize it memorize it memorize it if you're lucky you'll get a c and i was like okay well it sounds awful and everybody kept saying you know you go to the final you spend three hours you hand it in you pray for a c i mean none of this was encouraging at all <laughs> I remember early in a chemistry a peer a classmate coming up to me you know we're just studying in the building because i study in the science building all the time and she asked me a question about a reaction and she explained to me this one pivotal notion which is like she said don't memorize the reactions you'll never win you just have to understand the mechanism of the of the reaction. Once you understand the mechanism of the reaction, it's true for all these different types of reactions. And it was like, I said, oh my gosh, where'd you get this information from? It's amazing. It's in the book. <laughs> oh my gosh, you're reading the book. And it sounds funny when I think about it, but it's like, you know, this is really one of those things I think about college. Like if I, so I ended up just to sort of dispel any myth here, I got an A in organic chemistry running away first semester and another A running away the second semester. And, you know, it was like this one simple truth that I didn't get from the classroom that I got from the, the peer. And it wasn't to diminish the role of my professors, but really it was an epiphany to me that I learned as much, if not more, from my peers, which I think was a big lesson I, I learned in college in general. And I think about that moment, how, how critical that was. Like, I don't think I would have been, I, I don't think I'm a doctor. If I didn't get two A's in organic chemistry, my grade point average wasn't good enough. And so it's interesting. I think back to the defining moment, it makes me worried a little bit when kids aren't going to school in person, especially in the college level, what they're missing um, that are also defining moments, you know, and it's, a, I don't know, it's something I wonder about. Yeah, I mean, I think for, I think it's, you know, we, we have been, and I've been also, I think many of us have been talking a lot about, you know, the importance for younger kids, the importance of schooling for, for younger kids. And I think, you know, that is, that is important in part because I think the learning piece is, um, you know, like it's hard to teach a kid to read on on Zoom. It's hard for them to focus, and so on. Maybe that piece, maybe that's a little bit, you know, parts of that are easier for for older kids and so on. But I think that there is, um, 
there is the learning from peers. And then there's also just the sort of basic socio-emotional development piece that is relevant, you know, for, for everybody up through, up through adulthood, but certainly, um, you know, certainly when my kids went back to school in the fall, um, you know, I, I, there has not been a day that I have dropped them off that I haven't felt, boy, I'm lucky that they are in school with their peers and not in my house like they were in the spring. And not just because it means that I can go to work, but because it is like so important for them. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Oster. I totally agree with that uh, point. Uh, as a father of a nine and a 13-year-old, uh, I've sent my kids back to school the entire pandemic as well and felt, you know, comfortable with it. I think in the beginning, of course, similar to many parents, I was really, really nervous. But uh, I think what we've observed, as you've pointed out, has been that we see relatively low levels of transmission in K-12 through schools. So I've become more comfortable and certainly look forward to this uh, second semester here. Uh, one last question before we close here, uh, just going back to sort of some of your prior work before the pandemic, you wrote a number of books on parenting and pregnancy, and you certainly built a, an, an audience who trusts you with parents, uh, et cetera. And we'd be interested to know what the most interesting area of study for you at the moment is, whether it be COVID or not. But where do, what do you plan to do now uh, post-pandemic, assuming that we'll get there in the near future with the vaccines uh, and whatnot? Oh my goodness. Um, so I actually have another book coming out in August, um, which is sort of more about older kids and is kind of more, much more focused on decision-making. And so I've been thinking a lot, both in the pandemic and then, you know, I, my guess is I'll be sort of pivoting a little bit to that um, in the non-pandemic space, just sort of thinking about, you know, how can we use good decision-making tools uh, to make decisions actually, you know, both generally, but then also in the face of uncertainty. And so you know, thinking about in, in a, when we encounter something we don't expect like COVID as parents or as people, you know, what are the ways that we can, that we can set ourselves up to have systems to make, to make good choices. Because I think that, um, you know, if, if anything, for me, this has, this experience has really highlighted that don't always have those, those tools at our fingertips. And they are, you know, they, that sometimes means that we make choices that exposed we, uh, we wish we had made differently. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Oster. Our time has flown by. This has been a great conversation. You know, it's been fun to talk about COVID Explained and just chat with you about uh, life in general. It, you know, it's interesting. I think about so much of the pandemic has been just learning new information. And I think, you know, one of the things I just think about with pandemic is just learning is fun. I know it sounds like I'm inheriting something from many years ago, but I don't know, part of what's kept me fired up as a public health physician is public health is different every day to learn something new every day and, and i think that's really exciting and it's been fun to chat with dr emily oster professor at brown university and dr chan what is our final word for today thank you dr mcdonald thank you dr oster again for joining us it's certainly been a pleasure in closing i leave everyone with a moment of zen to consider throughout the rest of your day uh, here it is it's a classic quote from the buddha peace comes from within do not seek it without thank you all and be well